1: This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now here's your host, Jay Taylor.
2: Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I always like to remind you that I also write a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. I do pick some uh, stocks in that newsletter. as its name implies, gold and energy stocks and tech stocks as well. Uh, we're having a very rough time, as most of you who follow this sector know today. The gold price is down very significantly, uh, but uh, sometimes that's the best time to consider buying when it's very difficult to do. Uh, also, uh, my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, publishes a... Uh, or is in partnership with Chen Lin who publishes a newsletter what is chen buying what is chen selling and i should mention that uh today uh, yesterday actually uh for the next few days chen will be taking new subscribers those of you who signed up and put your name on a waiting list will be uh, uh will be accepted in the order uh that you signed up uh and put your name on that list and uh depending on how many uh spots are available uh you will be able to become a subscriber to chen's Excellent newsletter. What is Chen buying? What is Chen selling? And with the market down, uh, probably a better chance than some other times to get in on, on Chen's letter. Uh, I should also like to mention uh, J. Taylor Media is a good place for you to go to, uh, to follow, to access this this radio show as well as everything else I do. And something else that we've just added to J. Taylor Media I would like to mention today. Uh, If you go to J. Taylor Media, you will notice uh, a new banner there, All-in-One Preparedness. All-in-One Preparedness is the storefront uh, of a store called All-in-One where you can buy the sort of things you need, uh... for natural disasters to be prepared for uh... difficult times uh... that might arise and those of us who live in new york city can relate to this because we've had two years in a row we've had hurricanes uh... and the last one was a humdinger it was really a very very devastating situation and so uh... being ready and being prepared uh... is uh... is is the right thing to do one never knows and if uh... some of our guests are right the people that we're going to have on today's show are right then uh... it could be a more systemic pro uh, issue that all americans are going to have to deal with uh, in the not too distant future. Well, I should uh, want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making this show the uh, the number one show on the Voice American Business Channel. Also, want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. For the first hour of today's show, our sponsors are Brazil Resources, Eurasian Minerals, Dynacore Gold Mines, Golden Arrow Resource Corporation, Miranda Gold, Paramount Gold and Silver, Precipitate Gold, and Renaissance Gold. Uh, I should mention that today we are going to have, uh, Gene or John Martineau. He's the president and CEO of Dynacore Gold Mines. Uh, he's going to be a guest on my show just in a few minutes from now. As soon as we have our first, uh, our first uh, commercial, John will be joining me. Dynacor is one, definitely one of my favorite stocks. It's one that I own in my own IRA. It is a recommendation in my newsletter. The stock has gotten walloped today, like most have. It's down about 10%. Uh, to a dollar three when I last checked it but Dynacor uh, earned 22 cents a share last year and it's growings or its uh, earnings are growing very dramatically every year uh, and it looks like that should be uh, the case for a number of years to come so we'll be talking to John Marchino, uh after the first uh, break coming up in a few minutes with respect to today's show um I might just mention, uh, before we get to that, today's stock market, the equity market, is strong. I see the Dow is up some 78 points now, NASDAQ up 16 almost, and the S&P is up very strongly as well. Gold, on the other hand, is getting smacked down really, really hard. It's down some $25 right now. Uh, And with respect to gold, I would like to just pass on, this is from Jim Sinclair, who I think has a very good sense of the gold markets. Uh, I believe understands the gold markets as well as anybody uh, anybody does, uh, and he says, um, this is a massive attempt to break gold in order to camouflage the weakening Western banking sector. Paid bashers are flooding into all pro-gold sites, and many other pro-gold sites are under attack in other ways. Gold banks are flooding the paper markets, seeking to depress the price, but without selling too much. It is so obvious that this is a gold bank organized strategy to keep gold under $1,600. Old lows will hold, and the reversal will be at a spiritual level. My strategy is simply to do nothing. In other words, continue to hold uh, and perhaps even accumulate gold. That's uh, Jim Sinclair in his daily missive uh, today, Jim Sinclair's Mindset. You might want to uh, Google Jim Sinclair if you're not. Following him and what he's saying, I I believe very much uh, that Jim Sinclair has a very good vision of what's going on in the markets. So the question is then, if the equity markets are up so strong, is this really telling a story about what the American economy is like? And of course, my retort to that, to my own question is, of course not. As I have been discussing with real inflation running at about 8% or 9%, as John Williams pointed out a couple of weeks ago on this show, not the 1.7% phony number that the government is giving us, the real economy has remained in recession. It has never pulled out of the post Lehman Brothers decline, if you look at it in that way, for sure. And I wrote last week in my weekly newsletter, uh, to my subscribers in an article that I, that I, uh, titled American Economic Fascism Update, Housing the Big Lie. Uh, by the way, you can read that also if you go to J-Taylor Media, jay com. Uh, on the home page, scroll down just a little ways and you can find that article. You can read that uh, that the housing prices, yes, they have been recovering. Housing prices are higher than they were, no doubt about that. Uh, but the point is that some 80% of the troubled mortgages are being kept off the market. The banks, uh, in effect, have a, an oligopoly control, and certainly Fannie and Freddie now making 90% of the mortgages. And the major, uh, the major mortgage banks uh, uh, have a monopoly control, and they are keeping the houses, uh, the troubled mortgages off the market, and allowing people to live rent-free, rent and mortgage-free for two, three years or so already, uh, and that is keeping the prices artificially high. The banks don't want those mortgages to be thrown on the market, or it would suppress the, the housing prices, and it would also make everyone realize that the banks are, in fact, bankrupt. They are uh, Their equity is gone if they really recognized and allowed the true markets to exist in the housing market. So that means that the banks are not nearly as healthy as they look, and that's not uh, anything you know when they uh, took away the requirement of marketing of marked of marking marking the assets to market uh, then they made it possible for the banks to uh, to play this game this uh, this uh, camouflage uh, game as uh, James Sinclair calls it I did, uh, title of today's show, Our Parasitic, Our Parasitic Fed is Triggering the Five Stages of Collapse. The Five Stages of Collapse is the name of a book that one of our guests, uh, our, our main guest today, Dmitry Orloff, is, uh, is soon going to be publishing. Dmitry has written a paper with that title, which really outlays the thesis, uh, and you can find that at, uh, Club Orloff blogspot.com, that's club, O-R-L-O-V, is the way uh, the, Dimitri spells his last name, club Orlov, O-R-L-O-V, dot blogspot.com. Uh, and if if you go there, you can read uh, about the five stages of collapse, which of course Dimitri will be telling us about. He'll, he's coming on the show at about four o'clock today, and he will explain uh, the five stages of collapse and how he compares our colla- our situation very much with that of the Soviet Union. Uh, and he'll talk about the differences as well uh, as the similarities. Uh, but Dimitri's futuristic views are very much in sync with last week's guest, namely Chris Martinson, uh, who, by the way, uh, is scheduled to be with me again next week. I'm very pleased about that because we never got around to asking Chris what should people do if they buy his view of the world as he sees it and as uh, Dimitri Orloff uh, we'll explain his view as well later today. Uh, so I'm going to have, thankfully have Chris back with me, uh, and as I say, Dimitri will also provide some ideas later in today's show, I think, about how you can protect yourself given the uh, turmoil that Almost certainly seems to lie ahead. To me, it's becoming more and more clear as I look at what's going on in the markets around the world, and more and more clear why you should uh, take a look at all-in-one preparedness. All-in-one preparedness uh, at J Taylor Media. And by the way, you can get a five percent discount if you enter. Taylor 13 is the code when you visit that storefront, uh, go into all-in-one preparedness. Well, getting back to today's show then, uh, we are also going to be talking to Ellen Brown at about 3.30. Ellen is the author of The Web of Debt. Uh, she is a lawyer and she has a very good grasp of the legal mechanics behind that are being put in place right now and have been put in place uh, to essentially steal your money out of your bank account. She will explain why that is uh, the case and why you really do need to be worried about it. In fact, Ellen will make the case that the situation of American uh, American depositors are even more uh, more fearful or more uh, in uh, problematic than those of the people of Cyprus. So it's I think you you have to listen to what Ellen Brown has to say. Uh but it's not all gloom and doom today. We always have uh, or we should say that we have the always optimistic Gene Epstein is going to be with me at 4:30 this afternoon to tell us uh that he is in fact bullish on the stock market. And by the way, so is Ellen Brown. I might just mention that Ellen sees the biggest devastation coming to the average people and the poor people in America, because to, they have so much more of their wealth in the banks, and the banks are really susceptible to this uh, to the games that are being played and the bailout of the rich and the powerful uh, that have connections in Washington. That is for sure. Well, also, uh, on the, the good news front today, I'm going to, as I mentioned earlier, have uh, John Martineau of uh, the Dynacor Gold Mines Company with me. and He's going to be with me in just another minute. Uh, we're going to go to a break in just another minute, but this is a little prosperous gold mining company, one of my favorites for sure. Uh, it earned $0.22 cents a share last year. It's down 10% today. On this horrible market, twenty-five dollar down day for gold, uh, it's down uh, twenty. Uh, it's down ten percent to about a dollar three, uh, earning twenty-two cents, and the earnings look like they should continue to grow. We'll ask John Martineau what a down day like this means for his company and its future. Uh, in my view, from my understanding, it, it is actually not going to hurt them very much, as it will a lot of other gold mining companies. But in any event, I'm told by my engineer that uh, we do have to go to our first commercial break so we are going to take our break right now and when we come back um, I believe we're going to have John Martineau with us so don't go away I'll be right back
0: Voice America Business Network The Bottom Line in Business Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at Dynacor Gold.
3: Windfall profits happen frequently in gold exploration stocks, but the risk of losses are also common. Miranda Gold enhances prospects of shareholder gains by combining the intellectual capital of geologists, minefinders Ken Cunningham and Joe Herbert with other people's hard dollars in search for elephant-sized gold deposits in politically safe places like Nevada and Columbia. That keeps shareholder dilution to a minimum, so when discoveries are made, major gains are possible. For more, go to MirandaGold.com.
4: Precipitate Gold is focused on exploring and developing its gold properties in the Dominican Republic in Mexico. Precipitate's management team has been responsible for numerous takeovers. With valuations exceeding $280 million, with a successful team and a growing portfolio of quality gold assets, including an attractive concession adjacent to GoldQuest's holdings in the Dominican Republic, the company is well positioned for growth in 2013. For more information, please visit www.precipitategold.com.
2: Into good times. I'm your host Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me John Martineau. He is the president and CEO of Dynacore Gold Mines. Uh, John has been the CEO and president of Dynacore Gold Mines since 2006 when the company was founded as a spin off. Uh, incorporating all the gold assets of Malaga Inc. And he has been doing a masterful job running DynaCore. I can say that as a person who picked up the shares of this company at much lower prices than they are now, even after today's battering that it's taking in the market. Uh, and I've just seen this company grow in- organically by uh, earning money every year, plowing that back into growing and more gold production year after year, and, uh, and in that way, keeping the number of shares down very dramatically. Uh, v- at very very low levels, which is one of the most one of the biggest risks that people face, I think, investing in the junior mining sector. So many of these companies have to go out and issue huge amounts of shares uh, to stay alive. But uh, John has done a great job of earning money. Imagine that, earning money for the company Dynacore Gold Mines. So welcome, John, to uh, welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times.
5: Good afternoon, Jay. It's a pleasure to be back on online with you.
2: It's really good to have you and uh, you're speaking to us from Montreal today uh, and uh, really, really good to have you. I just should mention that uh, that your shares trade uh, on the uh, in Canada under the symbol DNG, and you can buy them also down here in the United States, as I have on the over-the-counter market as well. Tra- trading at about a dollar three uh, today, only thirty-six point uh, one seven million shares. Thirty-six call it thirty-six point two million shares outstanding. So, John, I really want to congratulate you on your strong performance in two thousand and twelve. You earned seven point seven million dollars. Uh, the company earned seven point seven million dollars, or twenty-two cents per share. Uh your gold production has been growing every year uh, over the last couple of years at least since I fo- started following you. Uh and uh you expect it to continue growing into the future as I understand it. Uh before we get into today's discussion however, you know, you have a very unique business model and for the benefit of those that may not be familiar with your business model, could you tell our listeners how you differ from most gold mining companies, producers or exploration companies?
5: Yeah, thank you very much uh G. Uh, Our business model uh, uh, was created to avoid uh, continuous dilution, as you said, about uh, a lot of exploration companies, meaning that we wanted to earn money to pay for the exploration. So in that uh, sense, we built a small mill in Peru to process ore from uh, a lot of uh, small producers in the country uh, whom they don't have any, uh, any, any mill to process it. So we built that mill in 1998 on a very small uh, base at 50 ton per day, and we uh, we went through uh, like seven years of a very low production because of very low price. But today we have a mill of 220 ton per day. We buy the oil from producers, local producers, and we process it and we sell the gold, and with the profit we pay for the exploration, so that way we we avoid to uh, to go in the market and issue new shares uh, every uh, every time that uh, we we need money. That way, we uh, generate all the cash we need for the exploration. So in that case, for example, this year, where the markets are really, really bad, well, we have generated $7.7 million in net profit. We have generated $9.2 million in in cash flow. So it means that we have all the money we need to pay for the exploration. And that way, the investors are protected again against any uh, dilution. And there we have the money to do the exploration.
2: Uh, and uh $0. 22 cents a share for a stock that's selling just at about a dollar with lots of growth prospects is uh, uh is is really very appealing uh from my point of view. Let's talk about your 2012 performance. How much gold did you produce in 2012?
5: Well, our target was uh, 49,000 ounces of gold and uh, finally we have reached 61,274 ounces of gold produced <laughs> last year. Uh, mainly because uh, of an increase at the, uh, in the in average uh, in average grade of the gold, but we are uh, we have been uh, way over our target, so that's why we have generated 7.7 million dollars in net profit, and uh, our target was 5.5. So this has been a wonderful year last year.
2: You know, I might just uh, take this moment to mention to my listeners that, in fact, this has been a pattern. Uh, that, uh, that John, you you don't overpromise and underdeliver. You underpromise and overdeliver. And this is not the first time this has happened. It's not to say that you will always be this successful for sure. I mean, I just know nature is that way. It's difficult. It's a difficult business. But congratulations on on doing that, being able to produce more than you promise to people. What uh, what is your margin per ounce of production this year?
5: Well, in 2012, our margin was, uh, for an average of the year, was uh, two uh, two hundred ninety eight uh, dollars mm-hmm. per ounce. In the last quarter, we uh, were uh 318 dollars. So it's it's increasing, but the average uh, uh, gross operating margin for last year was two hundred ninety eight, so three hundred dollars.
2: Hmm. Well, and I should mention there. Of course, there are projects out there. There's uh, some mining projects that make have bigger margins than that, but they also have huge capexes that go along with it. So uh, I, I think you know. Again, keeping keeping in in mind the earnings per share uh, to price is so is so important. But today we see John. We see the price of gold getting whacked really hard, down twenty five dollars. Um, how does this sort of a down day affect your your profit margins?
5: Yeah, here it's an important point because, as you said, the the gold, our margin is much, uh, maybe much uh, lower than uh, some producer or many producers, but they are directly affected by uh, the price when it goes down like today. Uh, We are not affected or very lightly affected with the move of the price because when we buy the oil, we buy it based on the uh, gold price. So if the gold price goes up. Uh, we uh, we pay a higher price, and as the price, the gold price uh, comes down. We pay a lower price, so mm-hmm. we're not much affected by these moves. So we have uh, quite a stable margin. Uh, we won't uh, get much more with uh, an increase in the price, but we're protected on the other side too. And as uh, the actual situation, this business is to pay for the exploration. So we have a very strong business, very stable uh, uh, cash flow uh, machine here, and it's what we need uh, at this point of the development of the company. So it's a, it's a very, very good situation for us, actually. So we're not really affected by the uh, the, the move in the gold price.
2: You produced uh, over sixty thousand ounces last year. Can you do that again this year? What are you providing some guidance for your uh, for your investors this year?
5: Yeah, this year we uh, we expect to produce about sixty six thousand ounces of gold because uh, last year we have uh, operated a mill at two hundred twenty ton per day for all the year around. And uh, this year, we're going to be uh, running all year round at the same pace of 220 tons per day. Why? Because uh, we're still expecting the construction permit from the uh, uh, mining authorities in Peru, and as uh, the the construction uh, timetable is about eight months, uh, we expect that uh, that uh, permit uh, any days because we uh, we filled out everything uh, we had to do. We did uh, everything we had to do. The uh, we've got the environmental impact study approval by the end of December, so now it's just uh, a red tape paperwork. Uh, we expect that uh, any days, uh, so I hope, I think we're gonna have it in, uh, somewhere in April, but as it's a uh, eight months construction uh, timetable, the mill will be, uh, at least uh, be ready by the end of this year, in January next year. So this year will be a full year, 220 ton per day. Uh, we expect to produce a little bit more than last year because, uh, If you remember, in April and May last year, we lowered the production a little bit because we stopped buying ore when the the rules, the laws in in this mining sector in Peru changed, and we stopped buying ore for about three weeks. So we had a lower production in the second quarter, which we don't expect this year. And the grade is still a bit higher than what (laughs) we had at the beginning of last year right so and i we believe have a target of 66,000 ounces
2: 66,000 ounces well very good uh, i i believe that actually the new regulations had to do with environmental issues didn't they and and i believe if i'm not wrong that that actually benefited uh, dynacor is that right
5: oh yeah yeah because uh, now uh, it, uh, it's a quite uh, pri- well it has been always private for example to process all with mercury, uh, but uh, before the last year, uh, this was privated, but not uh, with almost no consequences. And now the government uh, cracked down on this, and so it's absolutely privated, and they can get uh, people using that can be jailed, can be uh, fined. Uh, so this uh, the, these processes have uh, stopped, slowed down quite substantially, and these were the highest grade. Uh, uh, the highest grade oil was going in these uh, in these process, so it's a it's a reason why our grade is in, is improving
2: now. Okay. So you were operating legally, and you had a lot of people that were operating illegally. The government has cracked down now, and really uh, really made it a better place, a better environment for people, and that's really that's really benefited you. You know, you one of the things that really attracted to me to your company uh, was your Tumipampa project, and you have. Uh, you have a gold resource. I think it's a historical one, not a one resource there. And you also have an exploration target there that has the potential to be quite large. I mean, we don't know. We underscore the word potential. You are starting some exploration there. Could you talk about what you have going on at Tumipampa?
5: Well, in Tumipampa, what we uh, we have there, it's a property with three kind of mineralization. First one is a is a large scarn, which is used with a polymetallic uh, deposit. In this case, it's mainly copper and gold. And uh, we have identified up to today uh, up to 16 veins, uh, or some quite uh, wide veins with high-grade uh, uh, gold contents. And we have uh, some uh, spot of disseminated bridge-heat uh, zone, which we haven't explored uh, really up to today. So we began the drilling in the, in the SCARN, uh, a couple of years ago and we restarted that in December this year. Now we're drilling the SCARN and we're drilling uh, a couple of these veins and at the same time we're doing a cross cut going through uh, the uh, the five main veins there and the first one is the Manto de Rado, which is the widest uh, structure that we have and we identified on the surface there a 6.8 meters wide structure with a grade of uh, 8 over 8 grams on uh, 4.9 meters there. So it's a very, very interesting uh, structure. And uh, the, we're doing a cross cut there, 300 meters long. We have uh, we began that uh, by the end of na- 2012. We should get in this uh, Manto Dorado, the first structure, in the coming days or a couple of weeks from now. And uh, we're quite excited about that. And we'll continue another 200 meters the other side. And there we're going to stop and drill this Manto Dorado in which uh, we had these historical resources that you spoke about. Mm-hmm. So we want to transfer these historical resources in 43-101 uh, uh, resources, mm-hmm. actually. So we do the underground drilling there uh, as soon as we get through this, uh, this Manto Dorado. So it's uh, quite exciting. We had planned to begin uh, this exploration much sooner last year. But uh, because of a delay in uh, obtaining the permit, uh, we uh, just uh, obtained the final permit for exploration in uh, beginning of December 2012. So drilling uh, as uh by the end of December. So we're there, and we should uh, get the first results uh, published uh, probably in the coming weeks because now it's coming back from the uh, from the labs, and we are putting that together, analyzing that and. Uh, uh, <coughs> It's uh, it's quite interesting. We're gonna be through the, as I said, the manto de Rado pretty soon. So as soon as we get uh, the first results, we're gonna publish that uh, pretty soon.
2: You also have some um, some large scale potential there. I think uh, you have a scarn uh, a scarn uh, deposit or a, a scarn yeah. showing there. Have you uh, have you had some some results from that yet?
5: Well, uh, not yet is gonna be, we did, uh, uh, up to now we have eight, uh, eight holes done in the SCARN. Uh, we're just, uh, putting that together, waiting for the last, uh, results from the lab. Uh, it's part of the, uh, the results we should publish in the coming weeks. Uh, we just begun, uh, uh we just began this, uh, this exploration, uh, by the end of nine. now. we, have, we we have been in there for uh, two, three months now. We had two drills, uh, working there. And it's going to be uh, an ongoing process. There, we're going to have a lot to drill because this scarn is a four point. As of today, we have identified a scarn of four point one kilometers long by one point five kilometers wide. So it's a huge structure, and we have a lot of work to do there. But uh, uh, we're uh, we're there for quite a long run. We're going to have a lot of drilling to do there, and it's very, very, very uh, promising up to today.
2: I might just, uh, we, we just are almost out of time, but I'd like to ask you to comment there. You're in the midst of, of some very, of very, very big, uh, copper, gold, gold, copper tar, uh, mines there, are you not? You're, you're yeah. sort of in a good, you have a good address is what I'm trying to say.
5: Yeah, we're just in, uh, in the middle of, uh, as you said, the middle of, uh, many, uh, already discovered scorn. We are in what they call the super giant porphyry, uh, uh, Scarn, uh, copper gold belt in the northern part of, in the southern part of Peru and northern part of Chile. And we're surrounded by, uh, just on the west side, for example, we have Las Chancas, which is owned by, uh, Southern, uh, Copper. It's a uh, Scarn with 355 million tons there, grading at, uh, around 0. 0.65, uh, person copper. And, uh, I think it's, uh, it's .05 gram per, of gold per ton, something like, that. Mm-hmm. like this. On the eastern side, there is Las Bambas, which is, uh, developed by Extrata. It's a five billion dollars project, which they are developing now. Uh, the last news I saw from there, it's, they are already at 1.7 billion tons. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a huge scorn. And, uh, north and south, uh, uh, there are two other scorns, so Las Constancia and, uh, Wakira which has been discovered in the last years and sold for about a half a billion dollars. So we're just in the center of that zone. It's very, very uh, interesting and exciting there.
2: It it certainly is, uh, John. You know, we are out of time. Is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners before we conclude our discussion today?
5: Well, uh, we, uh, waiting for this, uh, this new permit there. We have a mill of 220 ton per day, actually. And uh, the, the new mill will be, uh, will start at 300 ton per day and will be, desi- has been designed to be expanded to 600 ton per day. So what mm-hmm. I would say is in the coming two to three years, we're gonna be on a continuous expansion for the, on the production side. And mm-hmm. at the same time, we're gonna be able to accelerate the exploration there. So mm-hmm. we are quite independent of the market in, in, in terms of, uh,
2: Financing. Yes, it's excellent. And as you pointed out, your margins don't get hurt very badly even on bad days like this. So yep, it's yep. nothing. I'd, I have a hard time finding a fatal flaw with this company, and I, I must say I'm very biased. I own a lot of it myself. For me, a lot, uh, and uh, it is a one of my top recommendations in my newsletter. So I want to thank you very much, John, for being with us once again, uh, folks. Uh, that's all the time we have for now. We're going to have to go to a commercial break. But when we come back, Ellen Brown is she's the author of the Web of Debt. Uh, Ellen will have some very important things to tell you, and I think some reasons why you might want to consider owning stocks like Dynacor, or owning gold and silver, and not necessarily keeping all your wealth in your checking account. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Ellen Brown. The business
0: community's first choice in internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network
3: Paramount Gold is a U.S.-based exploration company with multi-million ounce advanced stage gold and silver projects in the mining-friendly jurisdictions of Nevada and northern Mexico, backed by a strategic investor and a strong balance sheet. An experienced management team has completed preliminary economic assessments on both projects, showing robust economics and immense potential for increasing ounces and mine life. For more information, go to ParamountGold.com or follow on Twitter, PZGnews.
2: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me for a second time Ellen Brown. Ellen developed her research skills as an attorney practicing civil litigation in Los Angeles, uh, and she's written a book, uh, Web of Debt. Uh, that's, I think, her latest book, but uh, she turns those skills into an analysis of the Federal Reserve and the money trust. And uh, In that book, Ellen shows how the private cartel has usurped the people's power to create money and how we the people can uh, get it back. Well, Ellen, um, welcome again to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thank you, Jay. Really good to have you back and I think your book is more timely, uh, more important than ever given what's been transpiring in Cyprus, what we see happening around the globe. The financial system is uh, tattered and torn and ready, it seems, for collapse almost. Uh, Clearly, some people are very, very worried about it. Jim Sinclair is talking about uh, how central bankers are shaking in their boots these days. He thinks they're clearly worried about the huge derivative overhang that's that's out there. Uh and and so I want to get into talking to you about your latest uh, an essay that you've written uh titled It Can Happen Here: The Confiscation Scheme Plan for uh, US and UK Depositors. That is what I want to focus on today, but before we get to that, I'd also like to ask you to talk a little bit about the uh, the Public Banking Institute, you are the chairman and president of that organization. It's a non nonprofit organization uh, formed to further the understanding and facilitate the implementation of public banking at all levels. So, tell our listeners a little bit about that, a little bit more about that, and and how they can learn and perhaps follow that and even support it if they wish to.
6: Uh, thanks. Uh, the Public Banking Institute is uh, we're all just volunteers, but what we're trying to do is to get um, legislation in different states for public banks. We have one public bank. That's the Bank of North Dakota. That's the only one we have in the country uh, of that model. I mean, not counting things like infrastructure banks. And um, in North Dakota, they they totally escaped the credit crisis. They have their own internal credit engines, so the the banks didn't need to go to They didn't need the subprime, they didn't need to sell off their loans. They kept their loans because they were backstopped by the Bank of North Dakota. By law, the state puts its revenues in the Bank of North Dakota, which then leverages them, the capital and deposits, into credit the way banks do. But it's all internal. So instead of giving their money away to Wall Street to gamble away in derivatives, which, I mean, now we're seeing what. Some really serious consequences of having having big accounts in uh, J.P. Morgan or Bank of America. They keep them at home and they use them at home, and they, they of course they have total control. the The interest goes back to the state, which means it goes to the taxpayers, relieving their tax burden. And if they have a cr- uh, crisis, like when they had floods, the Bank of North Dakota is right there bailing out the homeowners, helping with infrastructure rebuilding. Um, you know they don't have problems like the insurer says. Sorry, it was the wrong kind of flood or something. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, so we have 20 states that have introduced legislation of various sorts for state-owned banks, but we haven't yet gotten any passed. But we're hopeful, of course, and we keep keep plugging away.
2: Oh, so, so I'll, I'll
6: give the website um, publicbankinginstitute.org, and we have a. A um, big conference coming up June second to fourth with with lots of amazing speakers.
2: Where is that going to be held, Ellen?
6: Uh, uh, San Rafael, California.
2: Yeah, that you're located in California and your organization uh, as well, or right. Mm -hmm. Uh And and I suppose people can Google the Bank of North Dakota to learn more about that as well.
6: Right, and I, I my website has a lot of articles. I have over 200 articles. That in,
2: that, in that website?
6: Since. Yeah, Web of debt. No, my website, Web of Debt.com. Okay. And um, my blog is Web of
2: Excellent. Well, thank you for that, and we'll ask you to repeat that again after uh, before we just before the end of our conversation, so people can uh, write that down if they haven't gotten it already. Okay, let's get to your latest article. Can happen here: the confiscation scheme planned for U.S. and U.K. depositors. I'm a U.S. depositor. Um, What what what's going on here? Um, Well, lay it on us.
6: What triggered this was, of course, the Cyprus. Cyprus bail in where um, the the Troika, which was the IMF, the EU and the ECB, um, in in order to to bail out or make further loans to Cyprus and their two failed banks, um, they said that they were going to have to do haircuts on the depositors, which in that included the insured depositors originally. So it was quite shocking and quite an unusual model. Uh, how it wound up, the people took to the streets and the the politicians or the legislators said no way, they were not going to um, hand over depositor money. But finally, in order to avoid total collapse, I guess, they agreed to the insured depositors would not be hit. But the uninsured depositors, I guess the last I heard, they're taking 60%. So 60% of their deposits will be turned into bank stock. So it's a debt for equity swap. But what good is your bank stock really in a failed bank? It's, if it goes the way of Lehman Brothers, it's going to be worth nothing. Plus that's money you can't get and you may never be able to get. It's, it's been turned into capital. So it's, so they were undercapitalized. So now they've got the capital, but the depositors don't have their money. So you think, well, that was just a one-off. You know, they had a, they had a, Bad day, or you know, they, there was an emergency over there, so they had to come up with that suddenly. But they haven't come up with it suddenly. There are such plans all around the world that are now appearing, and they obviously go back to the G20 um, Financial Stability Board in 2009, which was we gave them authority to regulate our banks, and they have come out with a directive that everybody's supposed to have these bail-in policies in place. The big banks have to have them. I saw J.P. Morgan's bail-in policy. And they're all so. So there's one called. It's an FDIC Bank of England directive. They jointly did it, and it was issued in December 2012. And it said that um, we've seen after the crisis of 2008 that we can't rely on taxpayer money to bail out these big banks. So, so in future, or in the event of a major black swan, you know, a huge derivatives crisis, what will we do? Um, And so they laid out this whole scheme where they're quite vague about what they're talking about, but they said they can go after the unsecured creditors, turn the unsecured creditors' debt into equity. Well, it turns out their largest unsecured creditor class are the depositors, that's us. And it never says in there that secure insured deposits are excluded. You would think they would discuss that. Uh yeah. At one point later, way at the end it says that depositors should be assured, you know, that their money is safe. But it's yeah. that's very vague and we know it's not safe. This is the F D I C and we know that they've taken the the secure unsecured depositors' money before. They did it in Washington Mutual. So mm-hmm. what they mean is you should assure your depositors their money's gonna be safe. That doesn't mean it is. It's like yeah. Yeah.
2: you should con them into believing it is. Get you know they don't want people to to run away from the banks. They don't want people taking their money out of the banks. So you better calm their nerves and make sure they think it's all right, so they don't run. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Well, well, you you know, very interesting point you make in that essay uh, is that in fact we don't really own the money that we put in the bank account. We are, are essentially we are lenders to the bank. Are we not? As you said, we are unsecured creditors to the bank. When we put a deposit in a bank, it's not like we. like we have uh, the right to take it back.
6: Exactly. It, as soon as you hand it over to the bank, it becomes the bank's money, and you have an IOU. You're a creditor, and that that's there's law to that effect going all the way back to the mid nineteenth century. And I was reading the, this law review article and why they did it that way, and they said, well, there's no way that if they if they acknowledge that it's your money, you're always going to be looking over their shoulder and wanting some say and what they do with it and they wanted the banks to have free reign to be able to lend it or gamble with it or whatever but the the shocking thing and it seems to me the reason that they've come out with these bail in provisions is that it is the derivatives crisis that um, JP Morgan and Bank of America both have more in derivatives than the whole global GDP uh, 79 trillion for one of them and 76 trillion for the other and they have commingled that their their derivatives um, arm and their depo- depository arm are the same thing. They've got their 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 deposits in the same uh, arm or whatever you call it that they're that they're gambling with, and of course they're the they're the counterparties on all these big bets, and these big bets are very likely to default. So when they do. The way they've set up the bankruptcy laws, the derivatives go first. The derivatives are actually before the uh, unsecured creditors. So if you if you had a like a huge derivatives bust, the counterparties would get paid. Just the way that uh, yeah, just the way that Goldman Sachs got paid out of AIG. In fact, that was the rationale for why they had to save AIG. It was to save the derivatives players. The theory being that if you let them go down. Then it's this whole cross connection of, you know, that these counterparties won't be able to pay those counterparties, and then the whole economy will collapse.
2: Like dominoes.
6: Yeah. So like so dominoes. they're going to take. It's not even that they're going to take our money. What they're going to do is pay off the derivatives players, and then there's not going to be any money left. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. so then they're going to then we can stand in line. But what they'll do is. Convert our deposits into. They'll say, "Well, we don't have it now, but we're going to convert your IOU into shares. You now have equity in the bank. Congratulations!" And uh, so. Yeah. Well, d- tell me then,
2: uh, Ellen. You made the statement that it's likely that we're going to have a de- derivatives collapse. Uh, why do you say that?
6: Well, I don't. You just said that the big. This uh, Jimson said that the central bankers are very nervous, and that yes. this whole. Uh, sovereign debt thing. I mean, they can't keep that those balls in the air because mm-hmm. there's no money for it. in 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 Europe, there just aren't enough euros. What they need to do is make some more euros, but the ECB won't do it. So yeah. they're all fighting for a limited amount of euros, and it's a it's a pyramid scheme that's at the point where it has to collapse. Yeah. unless it they like- change the system.
2: It is, a dyne- it is a dramatic, uh, uh, very, very large uh, Ponzi scheme like the likes the world has never seen. And I would say that actually the underlying economy from which wealth can be gained to finance all this is just not there either. As uh, John Williams on this show has talked about recently, that the real U.S. economy is not nearly as good as it's presented uh, for reasons we're not going to go into now because we have so much more to talk to you about. But One other question that came to mind as you were talking here, Ellen, and that is how in the world does the the U.S. FDIC and the Bank of England come together on something like this and write a joint paper? I mean, what does the Bank of England have to do with me as a United States citizen and my deposits?
6: That's a very good question. Well, the Bank of England, I, actually I'm writing a book on public banking now that I'm almost done with, The Bank of England was where the Bank for International Settlements came from. And then that's where the G20 and the the Basel Committee and the Financial Stability Boards, they're all offshoots of this international global regulator of private banks. And the whole purpose of it is to maintain that private banking system so that we the people will be... Basically locked into debt. To them, according to Margaret Kennedy, who is a German researcher, 40% of everything we buy goes to interest. So we could have that. That's including all the because all the every in every step of the chain of production, um, producers pay their workers before they have a product to sell, and so they do it on lines of credit. So there's loans that going into it. Everybody's costs. So there are uh-huh. multiple loans that go into the cost of making a product, and then at the end, they still have to make more profit. Uh-huh. So we have to pay all that. And you could um, you could reduce that substantially if the people owned the bank, or if the government owned the bank. You know, if it was a that. So that's what we're pushing for as a public yeah. model, where where credit is just where you just acknowledge that you didn't actually borrow anything from the bank. They just advanced credit. Mm -hmm. If you had a public credit agency that was totally transparent, totally publicly oriented, not gambling and derivatives, no bonuses, fees, commissions, um, it would just—it would not only be safer, but it would be cheaper. You know, we could all get credit cheaper, and it would be definitely cheaper for the cities and states, and they could get interest-free credit. So now I've forgotten the question. Oh yeah, so Bank of England. Yeah. Um, Well, they're obviously both. In the G20, mm-hmm. and they're the big players in the G20, but really, the, the city of London is really the head. So I've heard.
2: <laughs> well, the city of London, and and the name of your new book is what?
6: I uh, have a <laughs> title yet. I, I'm I'm almost done with the book, but I'm still deliberating on right. the title. Okay. Here's my current title: um, <clears throat> The Buck Starts Here, from Austerity to Prosperity with Publicly Owned Banks.
2: Well, uh, it sounds to me like there's all one major global cabal, at least in the Western world. Ellen, when Glass-Steagall was taken away, was that a big part of the reason we're having these problems? Because after all, there was a time when the banks uh, would not get involved in these investment banking activities. And the investment banks could do that sort of thing, but then their shareholders were at risk. And what they've done, it seems to me, is shifted this all onto the Uh, And now onto the depositors, onto the populace in general. And now when people are getting angry about being having their taxes go up, they're going to shift it onto the depositors. Is Glass Steagall was that a major, a major major reason why we're having these problems? The disappearance of Glass Steagall.
6: Right, and the reason it disappeared was we were required to get rid of it under the World Trade, in order to join the World Trade Organization Ah. under Clinton. And it says right in the Dodd-Frank legislation that they're allowing the big banks to go ahead and play with their derivatives, but it says, but we're not going to underwrite you. You'll have to figure out some way to pay it yourself if you go down, and you're going to have to show us these, uh, basically, they're called living wills, and show us what you're going to do in the event of a big crisis, how you're going to get out of it. And that's why they've all come up with these living wills with bail-in provisions. But they've intentionally, like at Merrill Lynch or at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch has moved their derivatives into the depository branch. which why did they do that? Obviously because they want to cover it with the deposit.
2: Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's just incredible. Uh, it, it just seems to me that if they start to if they start to take away bank deposits, I mean, they start to take away, you know, it, whether it's a, a you know, a premeditated act like they tried to pull in Cyprus or whether it is something that happens spontaneously when the banking system goes down, people are going to be mad as hell and they're not going to take it anymore. Is this the stuff from which a revolution could evolve?
6: Definitely, and, and it looks to me, depending on how conspiratorial you want to get, but it looks to me like they've had these these bail-in plans in place and that Cyprus was just sort of a test case. They picked this little island that nobody was going to be very sympathetic because of the the Russian oligarchs and the you know the tax dodgers and the money launderers their their money was there. So so people would just think well most of them they just got what they deserved. And um, I have read that a couple of weeks before they decided that these two banks were hopelessly bankrupt. They they passed the stress test So they just sort of picked them and and said, "You don't qualify." You know that you're going to have to come up with this new new thing. But but obviously they've been talking about it before that. New Zealand had such a plan. Somebody. The reason what motivated me to write this article was somebody sent me an email. In um, it was about a plan in September of last fall that was in New Zealand that was just like this, but it was more explicit. They explicitly said they were going to take the depositor's money, and that's what they would do in the event of a big bust. And he wrote, and he said, this this is their plan. This is what they're going to do. They're they're going to do this all around the world. And so I just tucked that away, you know, as interesting material, and
2: sure enough, you know, it, it really, it's really very timely, Ellen. I want to thank you very much for, for, for enlightening me on this whole issue. Uh, we only have a couple of minutes left here yet. I know that you made the point in your essay that, in fact, it's not the rich people are going to get hurt mostly. It's going to be the middle class, lower middle class, poor people. Explain that, if you would.
6: Well, most rich people don't have, I mean, they may have a substantial bank account, but they, they keep money in their bank account to pay their, checks like everybody does, you know, to pay Mm -hmm. the bills. But if you have substantial money, you've got it invested somewhere. So it's probably in the stock market or gold or silver, all the possibilities, Mm -hmm. real estate or something else. Um, So it's middle middle class and poor people who really rely on their bank account. I mean, that's all the money they have, and that can easily get wiped out.
2: One more thing, and my engineer is telling me got yeah, one minute. So, can you take thirty seconds to explain that, in fact, bank uh, that deposit uh, that is uh, deposit boxes might be at risk for gold and silver?
6: Well, um, I did see a directive from the uh, Department of Home, or I saw it wasn't a directive, but anyway, I heard the Department of Homeland Security has told the banks that in the event of a national security emergency. That they, you know, if if it was for national security, they mm-hmm. could break into the, to the safety deposit boxes, and I guess they've actually done it before. But I would assume they would call this a national emergency or a national security, national security yeah. crisis. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I would imagine so. Okay, tell our people your blog again. Where can people go to, to follow your work? Um,
6: my website is webofdebt.com. Yes. My blog is wordpress.com. and um, our other website is publicbankinginstitute.org.
2: Excellent. Thank you very much, Ellen, for being with us today. Folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back uh, after the commercial break with Dmitry Orloff who will tell us about the five stages of collapse. The first stage, which is a collapse of the banking system, just as Ellen has been talking about, unfortunately. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Dmitry Orloff.
5: Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty
0: company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over 15 million dollars on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure, a low cash burn rate and holds 43 million dollars in cash, creating value through discovery, growth and royalties. Eurasian Minerals.